Welcome to the Battlefield Baptist Church Podcast. We are so glad you joined us and pray that this message is a blessing to you today. This week for Orphan Sunday, Pastor Craig spoke on pure religion. Join us in James 1. In James chapter 1, I want us to draw our attention very briefly this morning um, to two verses. Two verses as we look at what uh, God has to say. And if you're there to James chapter 1, say amen. Amen. Drop down with me and look with me at verse number 26. The title of my message today is Pure Religion. Pure Religion. Now on the offset, you say pure religion and, and I know people would say, well, I'm not about a religion, Pastor. I'm about a relationship. We'll get there soon enough. But for... For title's sake, the title is Pure Religion. Let's notice what the Bible says in verse number 26. It says, If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion, undefiled before God and the Father, is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for what we've seen and heard and, God, truly what we have experienced in our hearts this morning. And we thank you for our veteran missionaries, the Reesers, and, God, the work that's being done in New Zealand and continues to be done. God, we pray for this ministry. Pray for them as they continue to lead that ministry. And, God, I pray that you would continue to add souls to the church there. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to thank our veterans today and our first responders and policemen and firefighters and teachers and on and on, all those that have been so gracious to serve this beautiful nation in which you've blessed us with. And God, we're thankful to be able to be in your house today to celebrate maybe for the first time, maybe for some, Orphan Sunday, where we might direct our thoughts and our attentions and our desires to what your word has to say on the subject Father, I pray now that you'll bless as only you can, that you'll have your will in your way. And God, when it's all said and done, we'll be careful to give you the praise and the honor and the glory for which you so rightly deserve it. In the precious name of your son, Jesus, we pray this in all things. Amen and amen. This morning, I want to simply ask you, I want you to consider one simple question. What does pure religion, what does pure religion that is undefiled look like? Without looking at Scripture, without looking in the, in the recesses of God's Word, what does pure religion that is undefiled to God, what would that in your heart and in your mind, what does that look like? In essence, what are some of the outward indications or manifestations that our so-called religion is actually good or even acceptable to God? Many times people ask me, uh, you know, who's your, who's your favorite person in Scripture? And I always say over and over and over and over again, Enoch. Why? Because he had this testimony that he pleased the Lord. He had this testimony that he pleased the Lord. And so I want us to draw our attention to God's Word and see what he has to say on the subject. Notice with me again in verse number 26. If any man among you seem to be religious, the Bible says, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Notice right away that James is saying here that you and I, we need to watch out for deceptions. Anybody ever been deceived? No? 
Thank you, young person's been deceived over here. We've been deceived in, yeah, in the marketplace. Anybody ever been deceived in business? You sign a contract, you think you got all things in order, and then the next thing you know, somebody backs out on the contract or doesn't pay on the contract. Some of you are smiling and laughing at the same time, crying. You're crying and laughing at the same time. Listen, we've all been deceived. By the way, Satan is a deceiver, is he not? The Bible says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary has a roaring lion. He walks about seeking whom he may devour. And so we have to be very careful of this idea of deception. Satan targets the mind just as he did back in the Garden of Eden when he deceived Eve. And then we know the downfall from there. But however, sometimes I believe in our lives, when we start thinking about deception, sometimes we help Satan along with this thing with deception. He might be the deceiver. He might be the destroyer. He might be the ruler. He might be the accuser of the brethren. And yes, he's all those things. But sometimes I look around and it's as if we're helping him do his job. We deceive. Anybody ever seen that? We deceive ourselves many times in a negative way. Has anybody ever deceived yourself thinking Satan likes to remind us that we're not good enough all the time? You're not worthy. You're not. You're right. I'm not worthy, but I serve one who is worthy. So get out of my mind, Satan. I'm not going to play the stinking thinking game. But also I think sometimes we deceive ourselves in a positive way too, don't we? We start to uh, maybe look at all of our good deeds, all of our good actions. And if we're not careful, what we do is we take those things and we heap them. We constantly place them and we heap them on on this scale. And when we feel like we have amassed enough points to please God, we kind of back off. You know, we, we heap on in the scale. Man, I've been to church three times this month. God must be pleased with me. Man, I prayed four times this week. The Lord must really be enthusiastic about my walk this week. Um, what about this? We uh, are praying, are giving, are serving. We throw all those things on the scales. And what we do is we deceive ourselves thinking that those are the things that please God. He's not impressed I was at uh, uh, basketball practice uh, yesterday, and then they had this meeting over at the high school, and, and the varsity basketball coach was running the boys through these drills, and it was amazing to see, and I was, I was worn out just watching them, and they were running these drills, and, and one of the drills was they were just supposed to make layups, game, game speed layups, just make layups, just make layups. Then I noticed one kid, he went under the basket and he threw a reverse layup. And then my son, he does the same thing. He comes through and flips a reverse layup and he's like, hey, hey, hey. And then I see this other kid, the tallest kid on the, on the team. He comes up and he slams it. And the coach says, stop, I'm not impressed. Go down to the other side of the court and start over again. Sometimes I think we're like that in our spirituality. We get going so well that all of a sudden we're flipping up reverse layups and we're slamming the ball. And God is saying, I'm not really impressed. If you want to impress me, walk by faith. If you want to impress me, keep my commandments. If you want to impress me, you want to please me, walk as Jesus walked. That's impressive to me. If you want to impress me or please me, make sure that my son is the priority of your life. Those things impress and please me. I got news for you. When Jesus is the priority of our lives, we will be pleasing the Father which art in heaven. Amen? Well, 12 of you agreed with that. 
We're doing better. Guys, when we please the Lord, we're going to be walking with the Lord. It's what's going to please Him. And this passage is pretty simple. Verse number 26, it's amazing to me, but it says, If any of us among us seem to be religious and bridle not our tongue, then our religiosity, if you please, is useless. That's what James is saying. He says, if your tongue is doing one thing and your life is is communicating a different message, your religion is useless. It's in vain. Have you ever invited somebody to church and yet you don't have a good testimony? They're not coming. They're not going to come to church. If you don't have a good testimony, if you're not walking your talk, they're not going to come. And this is what James is alluding to. In fact, the word bridleth, I thought that was pretty interesting. The word bridleth actually means... To curb. Actually means to curb. Years ago, maybe some of, I think maybe you have to be over 50 to remember this saying, but we used to say, uh, we used to do things to curb our appetite. Only four of you knew that. You have to be over 50 to understand it. You have to curb your appetite. What the Bible here is saying when it talks about bridling our tongue is you need to learn to curb your mouth. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, you need to learn to curb your mouth. It's that old song that I love to sing. Be careful, little tongue, what you say. Be careful, little tongue, what you say. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Be careful, little tongue, what you say. Proverbs 18, verse 21. The Bible says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. As Christ followers, we have to remember the tongue is uh, the tongue's use is only one. It's only one of the outward manifestations of an inward uh, relationship or an inward decision on our part. Folks, if Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning on the inside, it's going to be pretty evident on the outside. As I look around, if I see people walking their talk and talking their walk, and those things are consistent with one another, it's pretty easy to see who they have a relationship with. Now, I know some of you are saying, hey, it's Orphan Sunday. When are you going to get to the message on verse number 27? Guess what? James says you need to take care of first things first. How are you going to go and love the orphan? How are you going to go and love the widow? How are you going to go and love your neighbor, which the Bible talks about, if your mouth is not consistent with your life and vice versa? It's pretty important that we don't put the cart before the horse. We're really good at that. We're really good at putting the cart before the horse. We do that in every aspect of life. But David, who was a man after God's own heart, he said in Psalm 141, verse number 3, he prays for God to actually protect and to guard his speech. He says this. He says, set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. Because David actually knew that without the Lord's help, he could do nothing. Listen, that's the same with you and I. Matthew Henry said, In order to govern our tongues, we must also learn to govern our selfish passions, which lead to just about every sinful practice. We must guard our tongues. I was reading uh, some comments the other day on, on the tongue, and it was interesting to me to find out that the average person, and I know there's some that are below average and some that are above average, but the average person actually speaks 1,600 words a day. Anybody here over average? <laughs> I'm above average. Okay. If, now, here's the really cool part. If you speak 1,600 words a day, you actually are writing a 64-page book every day. 
It's the equivalent of a 64-page mini-novel, a mini-series, okay, if you please. In a week's time, let's multiply it, in a week's time, we speak 450 pages of a book. Anybody read a 450-page book this week? That's what we speak in a week. In a year's time, or in a month, let me don't skip that, in a month we speak over 480,000 words or the equivalent of a 1,920-page book. One year's time, we actually speak 5,760,000-plus words or the equivalent of four complete Encyclopedia Britannica volumes in one year's time. In a 70-year period, anybody here 70 years or older? In 70 years, on average, if you're an average person and you speak 1,600 words a minute, you actually will have spoken over 400 million words. That's roughly 44, the complete 44-volume set of the Encyclopedia Britannica nine times over. Nine sets of encyclopedias in 70 years. And you know, all that information is good. But the real question is, what is your book saying? What, if you're writing a 64-page book today, what does your book say? If you're writing a 450-page novel this week, what is it saying? What, is your, what are your words communicating to the world? Because I look around and, and I see the attacks coming to the Lord's house. But you know what a lot of those attacks come from? Within. We start fighting with one another. We start fighting with other Christians. We start debating one another. Listen, the only thing that we need to know is that Jesus Christ is still the King of kings and the Lord of lords and He's on His throne. And nothing changed in that. Doesn't matter who the delegate is, doesn't matter who the governor is, doesn't matter who the president is, Jesus Christ is king. We need to quit fussing and feuding and texting and writing all these stupid things that I see on Facebook, on Twitter, and, and all. Do they still have MySpace? Is MySpace a real thing anymore? I'm just teasing, I'm just teasing. I knew some of you techie guys would uh, say like, man, he's really, he hadn't been around It's been a long time since MySpace was a thing, Pastor. (laughs) No, I get it. Guys, we have to be very careful. And so the question is, what is our book saying? And then ask ourselves this question. And only you can ask it and only I can ask it of myself. Is Jesus controlling my tongue? You see, without the Word of God and the Spirit of God being employed in the use of my speech, I'm going to mess it up every time. And by the way, if you don't think you're talking when you're thumbing on Facebook and email and everything, you're fooling yourselves because you are communicating a message. By the way, we communicate messages without saying a word. If you sit there and you hear God's word preached and you hear a truth from God's word, but you don't ever want to acknowledge God's word, you're communicating something to God. You're actually communicating a message. Hey, you can communicate all kinds of messages to me. I get it all the time. But what are you communicating to God? Oh, I think that ought to be more important. Notice on in our text, verse number 27, because this is where we want to get, right? First part of verse 27 says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. Now, what you need to understand is look at the verse, because I want you to look at the word pure and undefiled. The word pure actually means to be clean. 
What is clean religion? The word undefiled means unsoiled or unspotted. The idea here is that pure religion that is undefiled before God and the Father is a religion that is sincere. It's a religion that is not only insincere, it's genuine. It's sincere, it's genuine. Listen, pure religion is going to be sincere and genuine because it is based on a relationship. Listen, my relationship with my wife is pure and it's undefiled. It's clean and it's unsoiled. And I think God takes pleasure in that because it's a, it's a mirror image of Christ in His church. Men, we ought to strive to have a clean and an unspotted marriage. Amen? I would at least thought the ladies would have thought that was a good point. True religion is based on a relationship that's bigger than you and me. Listen, that relationship, the, the thing that I love about this relationship with Jesus Christ is that you cannot have a relationship with Jesus and then tell me you're not moved to action. You say, I have a relationship with Jesus, but all we ever do with that relationship is sit Now, uh uh-uh, problem. That's a problem. And listen, that may rub the fur the wrong way, but just turn that cat around, it'll be fine. Listen, that's a problem. If If you say you're connected with the Savior of the world, you're connected with the one who put himself on that cross, was beaten, was bruised for our iniquities, and and on and on and on, we know the story. And you say, I I have indifference. I I don't really care about the orphans. I don't care about the widows. There's a problem. I don't care about the homeless. I don't care about the needy. That's a problem because God's word over and over and over talks about this. And yet I think we've sat on the sidelines long enough. That's why we're celebrating Orphan Sunday. Listen, it's going to be based on a relationship that moves us into action. We cannot see a need and simply walk away. 2 Corinthians 5 verse number 14 says that the love of Christ constraineth us. That means it compels us into action. It causes us to do things that probably, ordinarily, we wouldn't do. Am I right? My marriage causes me and compels me to do things that I normally wouldn't do. I said it years ago and I continue to say it. Listen, I'm not getting up and washing dishes for just anybody. But man, I love my funny little honey. And so guess what? I get in there and I'll scour those dishes with the best of them. If it pleases her. If it makes her job a little bit lighter, it's okay, guys. It's okay to help your wives out. By the way, it's okay, ladies, to help your husband out. It goes both ways. 100 to 100. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. We know the passage. Jesus, he looks out on the multitude. And what does the Bible say? When he sees the multitude as sheep having no shepherd, it says he was moved with compassion. He was moved with compassion. It moved him into action. He went to the cross for us. Our love for the Lord, if it's a genuine love, will translate into compassion for others. There's no way that we can say we love the Lord and then say we hate our brothers. There's no way. Listen, pure religion is based on a relationship. Jude 22 says, and of, and of some have compassion, making a difference. Oh yes, pure, pure or true religion is based on a relationship, but it's also going to cause us to get involved. Like I said, it's going to move us into action. In Mark chapter 12 and 
This is Jesus speaking. He says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart, with all of thy soul, with all of thy mind, and with all of thy strength. And this is the first commandment. And then he goes on in verse number 31, and he says, And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And then notice what he says. There is none other commandment greater than these. So here's the question and here's the rub. Who is our neighbor? Who is our neighbor? Well, I live over on uh, Turnbuckle Drive, Pastor, and I got a neighbor to my left. No, who's our neighbor? That's every soul that we come into contact with. That means (laughs) that person who bumps into you in the store and doesn't say, pardon me or excuse me, that's your neighbor. How do you treat that neighbor? How do you communicate the love of Christ to that neighbor? Listen, the Bible tells us in 1 John 4, verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. We're talking now about the vertical, the vertical manner in which God's love came down. You see, Jesus said that thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. You and I, we are unable to love correctly. We're unable to forgive correctly until we have experienced the love and forgiveness of Christ. But once we experience that vertical relationship, then the very next thing the Lord said was, love your neighbor. He said, take it from the vertical to the horizontal. Go out and love your neighbor. In 1 John 4, 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And you can read 1 John 4 is an amazing passage. And it talks about that if you say you love God but you hate your brother, the Bible says you're a liar. It says I'm a liar. Those things, don't, those things cannot coexist. But back in our text, James is suggesting two groups, two groups of neighbors who are deserving of our special attention. And that's where we focus our attention today, and that is on orphans and widows. Notice in that verse, the phrase, in verse number 27 again, it says, in their affliction. That phrase, in their affliction, actually is speaking about those who are in anguish. Those who are burdened. Those who are suffering hardship. Um, there was a, uh, the video that uh, Justin and Lindsay, you guys shared with me. Oh my goodness, how amazing is that, that the man talks about uh, this boy sitting on the side of the road. And thinking about a boy that is starving, he is hungry, he is destitute, no one is caring for this child. And in his mind's eye, he pictures it as being his own son. How do I I delegate that? What would my response be if it were my child, if it was your child that was sitting on the side of the road that had no food, had no clothing, had no leadership in the home, had no one to even care for him? How would that change our opinion of caring for others? And yet, that's exactly what James is suggesting here. He's saying those that are in affliction, those who for the most part are alone and have been forgotten, he says we need to care for them. In the Old Testament, the Bible actually warns us about forgetting these groups. It's not very uh, pleasurable, I can tell you. If you'll show Exodus 22, guys, this is going to really hurt because it, it really struck a nerve with me. 
And listen, my wife and I have opened up our home to students after students and we basically adopted Lauren into our life and she became part of our family and this is a great thing. But I was reading this passage and and the Holy Spirit was convicting me. Notice what it says. It says, ye shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If thou afflict them in any wise and they cry at all unto me, God says, I will surely hear their cry. Notice what he says in verse 24. And my wrath shall wax hot, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. Guys, God's pretty serious about caring for orphans and widows. Mark, we were talking about it this morning, the context of what was going on. The children of Israel were always going to war. And I'm imagining that a lot of men lost their lives. And there were widows and widows and orphans all over the place. And God says, you better take care of them. You better take care of them because if you don't, I will kill you and make your wife a widow and your children orphans. God takes this very seriously. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse number 17, the Bible says, Learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. That word judge actually means that you and I ought to be defending. We ought to be about the business of delivering and defending the orphan. In Zechariah chapter 7, verse number 8 through 10, the Bible says, And the word of the Lord came unto Zechariah, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment and show mercy and compassions every man to his brother. Verse number 10, And oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor, and let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. Oh yes, time and time again, we don't even have time to go to all the passages where God warns us to be caring for the fatherless. In Psalm 68, verse number 5, we find that God is a father of the fatherless and a judge or a defender or protector, if you please, of the widows. But folks... He wants us to be involved. I know the easy answer is to say, God's the father of the fatherless brother. I don't have a responsibility. You are wrong. You are sadly mistaken. He wants us to be involved. You said something this morning, Brother Reeser, during our uh, 10 o'clock hour, and it reminded me of this thought. God wants us to be intentional about our intentions. Many times I think we have great intentions when it comes to this area of our Christianity. But he wants us to actually get intentional about our intentions across the board. Not just in this realm. And by the way, James is not suggesting, guys, that caring for orphans and widows is all that our religion should be about. That's not what he's saying. If you go away from here today and you think, well, James, all he wanted was for people to care for orphans and widows. That's, you're missing the point. What James is saying, he's reminding us that if our relationship with Jesus Christ is real, then it's actually going to manifest itself through practical generosity. Are we generous? Are we being generous with our time, our talents, and our abilities? You see, when we start becoming generous, we begin to have the heart that God has. We actually take on kind of his identity And isn't that what Jesus said? Hey, people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Oh, James understood that faith without works, not words, was dead. Not faith without words. He said faith without works is dead. 
Not only are our words vitally important, but pure religion will cause us to compassionately care for others. I put down here, false religion may at times perform acts of mercy and charity, but when it does, it motivates, when it does, its motives are not pure. It's like I've said before, you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. Think about that a little bit this afternoon. See, I can give. I can, I can pull up to a stoplight or I can be uh, uh, called and said, hey, would you be willing to give to this need? Or many times we check out, right? We check out at Walmart or, or some store and they're running some type of a campaign. Would you give to the St. Jude's Children's Hospital? And let's be honest, how many times are we praying for the St. Jude's Children's Hospital? But because we feel compelled at that moment, or maybe even we feel a little guilty, we say, yeah, go ahead and add a dollar onto the bill and we give it to St. Jude's Hospital. Are we really loving there or are we just giving? You see, the difference though is when we love, you can't help to give. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only begotten son. Listen, again, religion that God approves of is a religion, if you please, that cares for those who quite frankly cannot care for themselves. In verse number 27, look at our passage again. Verse number 27, notice the word visit. It says that pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit. That word visit actually means to look upon or to look after. And so the word says to look after the fatherless, look after the widows, the orphans, the widows, the unborn, the sick, the dying, the homeless, the disabled, the victims of abuse, on and on and on, not just orphans and widows, but man, this ought to be a call to action. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 through 18, the Bible says, Hereby perceive we the love of God. Because he laid down his life for us, we ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother hath need, and shut up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Notice what verse 18 says. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Guys, I've been going very fast because I understand the lateness of the hour. But it's one thing to talk about loving others. It's one thing to talk about it. Remember verse 26? You've got to be careful. Bridle your tongue. If you're talking about love, but you're not really showing love, you might want to bridle the tongue a little bit. Curb it. See, it's one thing to talk about loving others. It's a completely different thing to actually be showing or doing it. One of the last things I see in verse 27, and we'll close this down, is it says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. And then notice that last little phrase, which probably causes us more consternation than we'd like to admit. It says, And to keep himself unspotted from the world. By the way, not my job to keep you unspotted from the world. Your job to keep yourself unspotted from the world. My job to take care of keeping myself unspotted from the world. Listen, we need to care for others. But we must understand that we live in a world today that is consumed with itself. If we fail to walk circumspectly in this world, we will have a problem living out our faith in front of the world. In fact, I would say not only is it going to stain our walk, the spottedness, but it's also going to bring shame to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We must maintain our presence in the world with 
without becoming like the world. The guys and I are reading this book called The Church Awakening. It's a pretty interesting book thus far. And at the end of this last chapter, uh, J. Wilbur Chapman, evangelist and pastor of yesteryear, he said this, and I've shared the first part of this quote before, but he said these words. He said, it is not the ship in the water, but the water in the ship that sinks it. Likewise, it is not the Christian in the world, but the world in the Christian that constitutes the danger. You see, when the world starts to seep in to our lives, we cease to have a heart of compassion towards others because the world's focus is on itself, right? And so if we allow the mentality of the world to come in to our lives, it's going to have a negative impact on our ability to communicate love and compassion to others. It's like I say it like this all the time. Whatever we put into the cup, so to speak, is going to come out at some point. If all I'm doing is putting filth in, filth in, filth in, filth in, guess what? Sooner or later, filth is going to come out. If I'm putting negative in, negative in, negative in, negative's going to come out. It's that important. As we endeavor to keep ourselves unspotted from the world, I say this, we are to be fully engaged with a world that is full of needs. Be fully engaged with a world that is full of needs. So how do we do that? Well, first of all, Christ must be living inside of us. You see, without Him, we'll never control our tongue. We'll never compassionately care for orphans, widows, or anyone. And quite frankly, without Christ ruling and reigning on the inside, we'll never even endeavor or understand why we need to maintain our own character as Christ followers. I uh, want to close this. Maybe some of y'all recall the story of the Good Samaritan. And I know it's a different context, different story, uh, and even to some degrees a different application, but I think we could learn something from it. You remember the man was basically left for dead in the ditch, and uh, the priest comes by, and the priest sees the need. But the priest is busy. He's got a busy schedule, and so we know the rest of the story. He moves right on by. The Levite comes along, and the Levite looks over, and he's, he's momentarily concerned for the man's need. And yet the Levite, because of his responsibilities, moves on down the road. But then we find the Samaritan, the most unlikely of sources to show compassion. And here's what the Bible says in Luke chapter 10, verse 33 to 35. Notice what the Bible says. Jesus says, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, notice, it says he had compassion on him. And went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave it to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. See, even though it's a different, different story, a different application, I think we can see something here that might be profitable for us. As we look over into Russia, in Ukraine, in Armenia, in Libya, in Kenya, and on and on, all around the world, how about as we look in the state of Virginia, in West Virginia, in Kentucky, in Ohio, in California, in Montana, and we look around and we see that there is a need. 
When we say we have the love of Christ dwelling inside of us, how can we close the door on that compassion and walk away without doing anything? That's why I'm so thankful we're involved now at Battlefield Baptist Church. I'm thankful we're involved in ministries such as the Pregnancy Care Center that we could reach out, uh, carried to full term, Mana worldwide feeding centers and, and places, uh, orphanages and places that can bring care. But I say, why not put a stop to the orphan crisis? You know we can do it. There's seven and a half billion people in the world. And if you notice the, t- the statistics in the bulletin, only a little over, what is it, 140 million orphans? Oh, this is a doable thing. I say, let's put them out of business. Why not? Maybe God is asking you to be a part of that. Listen, if we're going to have a pure religion that's undefiled before God and the Father, it's going to be a religion that's based on a relationship with Christ. It's going to be a religion that guards the use of our tongue. It's going to be a religion that loves our orphaned neighbors, our widowed neighbors, our hurting and sick and dying neighbors, our homeless neighbors, and on and on. And it's also going to be a religion where you and I Every day we wake up, we endeavor to walk with the Lord to a greater degree. Jude 22 says, and of some, having compassion, making a difference. Will you make a difference? I pray you will. You may be here this morning and you say, what? I've never understood the love of Christ. Man, we can't talk about Orphan Sunday without recognizing that we are all orphans spiritually. But when we have this relationship, when we enter into this relationship with Jesus Christ, we are all adopted sons. And there's, I don't have time to explain to you. Ladies, just please note that it's a good thing that you're adopted as a son in the beloved. Okay? I know it's like, well, I want to be an adopted daughter. No, you don't. Jewish, Jewish uh, uh, history, you don't want to be that. You want to be an adopted son in Jesus Christ. Because guess what? There's no disowning you once you become an adopted son, an heir of Jesus Christ. And so that's a beautiful thing. All of us orphans, all of us pilgrims and strangers just passing through. And I'm so thankful that Jesus loved us enough to die on the cross for our sins. All he's asking is would we love him enough to get involved in some way with caring for the neighbors that are all around us. Would you pray? Thank you so much for listening. For more information about our ministry, please go to battlefieldbaptist.org or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. See you next time.